All right, we are in Ephesians 5 this morning. A century ago, Sigmund Freud was declaring the notion that sex is the source of man's greatest satisfaction and happiness. Freud believed that human interaction ultimately boiled down to two things, work and sex. Work was the necessity that man had to do. Sex is the thing that he most desired and would not be deprived of. And went on to say, Freud wrote that these realities have convinced man, quote, that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. Words you never thought you'd hear from the pulpit, right? Like it or not, Freud's atheistic views on things are profoundly influential. Secular and spiritual sources will tell you that Freud has had a great impact on worldviews and on how people think about things. His ideas about what drives human behavior, about religion, about human nature have all spread throughout Western thinking. And at the core of what Freud was contending a century ago is that we are sexual beings. Our lives are built around, as he described it, tension and pleasure Tension being due to buildup in sexual energy, pleasure being its release. And so you say, oh, what, what, what does that have to do for us today as believers in Jesus Christ, particularly as we're in the midst of this series on redeeming sex and sexuality, studying this topic? Well, that's a good question. Let me answer it for you. Christian scholar Carl Truman is one of many, and, and it's not just Truman. There are secular scholars and Christian scholars alike who will draw a line from Freud's thinking to where we are today and to some of the high points or rather low points in, in our Western culture's sexual history. And if you follow Freud's thinking that sex is everything, you, you clearly come to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, and then you come to today. But his, his idea that we are largely sexual beings who are driven by these uncontrollable urges and that it's all about satisfying these things is what gave support to arguments for sexual freedom in the 60s and 70s. The, the idea that, that sex is everything, sex is happiness, you must satisfy your cravings, and therefore anything should be permissible. Carry Freud's logic over to today, and sex is now fundamental to a person's identity. A person's sexual orientation and gender identity have never received the kind of attention that they do today, and here's where that intersects with this study. Biblical teaching about sex, about sexual sin, is no longer viewed by our culture as an option, as one sort of scheme of morality and maybe even an acceptable approach to some. Today, biblical teaching on sexual immorality has become an attack on individual identity. Because sex is everything, because sexual orientation and gender identity are now my whole identity, therefore, if I say something about sexual sin, I'm attacking a person's identity. That's at least the perception that's put forward. And so the charge is now that biblical teaching on this is hateful and violent. If you look through the New Testament, there are about two dozen lists of sins, two dozen places where you come across the so-called vice lists, where there's sort of a litany of, of sinful categories. First one's in Matthew 15, and it's Jesus speaking. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And ending with the last list in Revelation chapter 22 of those who are excluded from the eternal kingdom of God. And there it says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those two lists are representative of the nearly two dozen New Testament lists. And sexual immorality is not on every one of those lists, but it is on by far most of those lists, the majority of them. There is some reference to fornication, adultery, homosexuality, some other deviation from God's design. All 
varying behaviors that have been embraced to one degree or another by the culture for millennia. But what's, again, different today is now these things are being tightly bound to people's identity. So to even call it sin, to confront it as such, is perceived now as threatening. You're not just a Christian who holds a worldview, you're attacking someone maliciously. That, that's why the, the movement today has gone far beyond tolerance, the idea that I, I, I accept that this view exists over here, but now it's about celebration. You can't call something sexual sin or even settle for the notion that, well, what people do in their homes is between them and God. Today, you must acknowledge that a person's sex and sexuality, whatever that might be, is good for that person, that that's what they choose to do and that's who they are, and so therefore it's good. And if you don't, again, the culture says now that you deserve shame for thinking differently, for thinking less. If your child had tendencies toward rage or lying or thievery or slander, all of which probably crept up at one point or another in all of our childhoods, if your child had tendencies towards those things, you would not contend that your child's whole identity is caught up in, in that act, in, in that deed. And so you would then take the opportunity to teach and to confront and to help your child understand how the consequences are of such behavior. But the culture now says that if you think your, your child thinks differently on sex and sexuality, you're, you're to embrace it. You're to celebrate it. You're to acknowledge it and, and by no means to question it in any way. It, the culture would rail against the very analogy I just made, which just lumped rage and slander and thievery in with homosexuality and adultery and pornography. The culture would say, you can't put those all together. There's nothing wrong with this side. These are just choices, consensual choices. When it comes to sexual sin, we who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ are at a crossroads. I think pastors say these sorts of things. They've said it for millennia. We're at a crossroads. This is a pivotal point in time. I, I, the reason that the elder team believe that this sermon series was important for this time is because we genuinely believe that we really are at a crossroads in this because the Bible warns of attitudes and actions that God clearly describes as shameful. And we'll see that here in Ephesians chapter 5, this word shame. But our culture now rejects that use of shame for anything that has to do, almost anything that has to do with sex and sexuality, and instead turns shame on those who would hold to a biblical worldview. And the question then is, who do you functionally believe and follow on this? Who, who is Lord? Who is your leader on this stuff when it comes to who you actually believe and follow? There's really no neutral ground. The book of Ephesians is a, 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 one of the clearest examples of a pattern in New Testament teaching that we see often and we see well throughout the New Testament, which is here is God explaining this is who you are in Christ. This is what God by his grace and in his mercy has done to save you. And in light of what he has done, therefore, you are now to obey. You are now to act as a child of God. Keith said it so well during his, his baptism testimony that it's not that I'm trying to earn grace, but that I'm responding to his grace and that I'm obeying as a consequence of what he has done. This is who you are because of what God has done, therefore live differently. You don't obey to earn God's love. You are loved by God, so obey him. It is the command following the statement of fact about what God has done. So if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, 
God has already rescued you. He has already delivered you. He has saved you from sin and from judgment, and he has made you his own. And so Ephesians then turns the corner in chapter 4 and begins to say, now, here's how you respond. Here's how you live in light of this. Ephesians 1 through 3, all that God has done to save a people, celebrating God's grace, ending at the end of chapter 3 with this glorious benediction, attributing glory to God, and then chapter 4 saying, therefore, live differently. Don't live as, as the people that you once were, who were under God's wrath. Now live as children of God. So let me read chapter 5, which is Paul continuing this line of argument. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true." And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Before we consider this passage and some of its implications for what we're talking about, I want to say something I've said before in this series, and that is as believers in Jesus Christ, the, the great commission that we've been called to is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior. It is to remind people, to tell people that, that sin is the problem and that they are separated from a holy God by sin, but that Jesus has come and, and he has taken our sin upon himself and the justice that we deserve was poured out on him through God's wrath on the cross and that he has died and risen again. And if they will turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven and saved. Our mission is not to merely rescue people from patterns of fits of anger or patterns of dishonesty or patterns of sexual sin. If all we do is help people reform aspects of their behavior, just sort of fix certain things and get them to buy into our morality and leave them lost in their unbelief, then they are still hopelessly lost. They may be fixed a couple of things, or at least in our minds fixed a couple of things, but they are still needing Jesus Christ as Savior. They still need to rest in the death and resurrection of Christ. And that is primarily what we are called to do, is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But in the process, the Bible also does condemn the sinful practices that are associated with unbelief. We speak about sin because we understand that in the gospel, sin is what separates us from God. And therefore, we need to be truthful about it. God's word warns those who profess faith in Christ, in particular, against lingering in patterns of unrepentant sin. 
In fact, it warns us to not take part in such things. Instead, we are to expose them. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to read biblical teaching about some of these specific acts of sexual immorality, of lust and porn and adultery and homosexuality and so on. These warnings are biblical teaching to believers. They are speaking to us because they understand that temptation is still real for us. We, we still, we've not been made immune to that, though we wish that is not the case. And, and so these are still directed to how we relate to sin. Our unbelieving friends need Jesus and his gospel. We still need to call them to believe in Christ. That's primary. But we are no help to them if we downplay sin, if we ignore sin's power to destroy if we ignore the penalty of sin, is death. When we fail to speak God's truth on these things, when we ourselves dabble in them, joke about them, watch them in some way, participate in them in some way, or even stubbornly throw ourselves into these things, we are not only calling into question our own testimony, but we are undercutting the very gospel of Jesus Christ and what it has done to transform us. So I, I want to give you three principles this morning that I think relate back to this particular topic that are, I would just submit to you part of an urgent plea for how you and I think and act pertaining to the, the growing divide in our culture concerning sex and sexuality. And here's the three points. God's word is explicit about sexual sin. The world's appeal for sexual sin is pervasive I wish I had an is, one word sort of thing, but I don't. The third one is we must not be ashamed of the Savior and his truth. So the first one, God's word is explicit. This, this passage covers everything from laughing at sexual innuendo in our favorite sitcoms or through online memes to justifying sex and nudity on our screens because, well, it's a really good story and it just sort of fits in there to outright lust and adultery, all the way to, this, this passage speaks to standing by in silence while the world plunges itself into darkness and we don't speak. We don't warn, we don't urge, we don't call back, we just watch it. Verse 3 is comprehensive to start, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Not even... Not even in your, your zone. This, this shouldn't be a part of who you are. That word for sexual immorality, we've talked about it before, and we'll talk about it again during this series. The, the Greek word that gives us sexual immorality is, is one you've, you, you've probably heard mentioned. If you take our English word pornography and you go to the etymology of it, you trace it back, you get back to porne, which is in, in Greek was the simple word for a prostitute, and that's where this, this word is, porneia. The, the root of porneia is prostitution. Pornography, pornegraphe, is sort of written prostitution. It's a picture of, of sexual sin. That's the idea of the, the word parts put together. That's the initial substance of the word, prostitution. But by the time of the New Testament, the word comes to have much broader meaning in context to all deviations from what is God's design. And we know that because we see it used in these various ways throughout the New Testament. The first reference to Pernay is in Matthew 5.32. Jesus is talking about the subject of divorce, and he talks about divorce on account of Pornea. 
And it's interesting that he talks about, uh, on account of the woman committing porneia, the woman committing this act, and, and in that culture, that would not have been assumed to have been prostitution in any way. It would have been some other form of, of, of adultery. And so already in Matthew 5, in the first reference, it is clear that this word has a much broader meaning than just the narrow realm of prostitution. It is speaking about sexual sin. That's throughout the New Testament. Prostitution is part of it, but 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of incest and uses this word, and there is fornication and homosexuality and other, other sexual practices. All that which deviates from what God has designed is covered when he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. All impurity, every form of impurity. He's saying these, these conversations where you might treat this lightly or you might in some way seem accepting of this. This, this. this is not even proper among you. This is not to be joked about, this sort of innuendo that we, we, we just take in. If you watch any level of TV, it's just there on a constant basis. And, and, and Scripture saying you shouldn't be entertaining this stuff or, or be being entertained by it because it's just it, it's not fitting for who we are as those whom verse 1 has already described as beloved children of God. These things should prompt shame. And and, and there's the word that I just want you to think about because, in fact, verse 4, when it says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, that word for filthiness has the same idea of shame. That's the noun form of the adjective that's down in verse 12, when he says down in verse 12, it's shameful to even speak of these things. It's a, a word that, that, that speaks of that, that feeling of being turned away from something. I want nothing to do with that. That should be, in, in a sense, repulsive to me. I shouldn't be involved in that. And, and so what Scripture is saying is we cannot find these things acceptable. In fact, we should find them as shameful. We should see them as things that, that are displeasing to a holy God and that he characterizes in this way and should have no place among his people. He also used covetousness there in verse 3, and he defines that down in verse 5 when he says covetousness, and then he says that is an idolater. Again, this connects right back to, to sexual sin. It is the craving of something. Stuart's going to talk next week about lust and pornography, and, and, and this word for covetousness is that insatiable longing that says, I want this. I am determined to satisfy myself in this way. I say all this to make the point that God's word in Ephesians 5 is explicit. If this has all made you uncomfortable or convicted you, then join the club because we are all broken in this. And it should because it speaks in the strongest of terms that this, this is how God sees this. He refers to it as darkness. He says you shouldn't even be laughing about it because those who persist in these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. On the contrary, he says, the wrath of God will come upon them. Those are explicit warnings. Let me repeat something that I've said earlier in this series, and I just want to emphasize it again. Sexual sin does not impose some unique level of guilt that makes you worse off before God than other sins. I want to be clear on that, that as we're focusing on this series, we are all broken, we have all sinned, we all can be convicted by various portions of what we're talking about, and and I do not want to leave somebody who has struggled with sexual sin feeling as if this is some 
category that is beyond the pale. The point of Ephesians 5 is the same as is all over the New Testament, which is if you persist in unrepentant sin, if you sin and sin and you are not convicted about it, you are not confessing it, you are not seeking help from it, you are not turning from it, then Scripture is warning you. The New Testament is urging you and saying you cannot persist in this sort of unrepentant pattern and claim to be perfectly at ease in the kingdom of God and walking in the light because these are incompatible. And if you are persisting in any pattern of unrepentant sin, that's the time to be asking yourself questions like, do, do I really believe God's word? Do I really believe what it says? Do I really believe that sin is the way God describes it as being reprehensible and my sin required the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ? That, that that's the judgment that my sin bears. Do I really believe that God commands me to repent and turn from my sin and continually trust in Jesus? These are questions to ask if you have a pattern of hating people without repenting or lying to people without repenting or sexual sin without repenting. God's word is explicit. Point two, the world's appeal for sexual sin is utterly pervasive. As I've been reading through Ephesians 5, these verses this week, I I really feel like part of, as you think of the flip side of of what Paul is saying, there's almost something that's kind of embedded in here. When verse 3 says, this stuff should not be named among you, the implication is it's, it's around and it is widely named among the world. It should not be named among you, but it's, it's there and you're going to have to work hard for it not to be named among you. Verse 4, it should not be something you you take lightly. Verse 6 warns of those who deceive you about these things. Verse 7, don't partner with the world on these things. Verse 10, don't take part in these things. The, the, The message over and over again, the implication is, at every turn, the world is inviting, beckoning to you and I to think and act wrongly about sex. The world is constantly sending the message that you're being prudish about this. You're being old school about this. That, that this is acceptable. This is normal. Sexual humor is in every popular show or movie. Lies about sex and how it satisfies our endless popular fashion for women is designed to draw attention to the female body. Watch any awards show, music, TV, whatever it is. The necklines have plunged and the hemlines have risen and the message is this is normal. Why would you not be like this? Why would you not be fashionable? Like, why would you not participate in this? Why would you not take part in this? That's the, that's the invitation. The world is urging us to partner with its way of thinking, to copy its way of thinking, to participate in it without shame. Don't, don't feel bad about this. At minimum, don't bring your prudish attitude to bear and your negative thoughts. Remember sexual positivity. Well, don't be sex negative, right? There's always been this cultural push toward permissiveness and and sort of no strings attached sex. Today, it's just perhaps more in your face that the cultural restraints are gone and they have been torn down. And Ephesians 5 speaks to all of that when it says, do not be deceived, but rather be discerning. Do not walk in darkness. Do not partner with this stuff, but in fact, Ephesians 5 says, expose it. There's the part that gets us squeamish. Not only do not partner, but call it for what it is. Be honest about what it is, that this is still sexual sin. 
We must not be lured into darkness or to think that we can play with this stuff, that it's a private fantasy, that it's consenting adults. Ephesians 5 is very clear that the seduction of sexual sin is strong. And Satan is not content to keep it at the periphery where it's just sort of off in the distance and we have to go find it. He's bringing it to our doorstep and our screens and our phones and our lives in every possible way. When I was a kid growing up in North Jersey, we would go over to New York City, or like the circus or things over at Madison Square Garden, and you'd come through the Lincoln Tunnel and there was 42nd Street. Some of you are not old enough to have any connotation of what 42nd Street means. 42nd Street was the zone for all of the X-rated theaters and prostitution in New York City. It, it was all sort of harbored in this one place and you'd come out of the Lincoln Tunnel and within blocks, as a young kid, I would be like, whoa. <laughs> at just the names that were on the movie theaters. At that point, and I'm not trying to beckon back to good old days here, but, but there was some sense of, we'll, we'll keep this here and you know where to come to find it. And now the world is saying, no, no, this is, this is out there. You, you need to go back and cloister yourself if you want to stay away from it, but why would you do that? That's shameful. You should come out and you should participate like everyone else. It's not just an invitation, it's a cultural command. You're now approved. If you won't accept gay marriage or whatever two consenting adults do, you're now hateful, you're homophobic. If you don't celebrate Pride Month, you are apparently willing to rob people of their human rights. You are attacking them in some way. If you call someone immodest, think that their clothing is immodest, you're judging that person and it's your thoughts that are wrong in all of this. I'm saying this, please understand me, not to stir up anger at the culture. None of this should surprise us. This is what the world apart from Christ does. But I'm, I'm saying this to encourage you to see again that Satan has turned our culture a full 180 degrees on the topic of shame. Whereas there was a time when some things even the culture said, ah, even that's probably shameful, far more that scripture would say is shameful. Now the attitude is you don't dare call that shameful. We will condemn you for calling that shameful and you are the one who is deserving of shame if you think this way. I, th this is the turning point that we face, I, I think especially for you and younger generations where the challenge is massive. To hold fast to biblical truth on sex and sexuality virtually guarantees that you will be marginalized, unfriended, disapproved, possibly fired or demoted, perhaps unable to get a license or a certification because of what you think, silenced, scorned, you will be hated by many, at times even by family, and they will try to shame you. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world, or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me extend that by application to say, don't love the world's approval. We, we know how we are. We know how we crave for people to like us, to want us, to friend us, to like our posts, to like everything about us, and we get uneasy when somebody doesn't like us. Why well, does he like me, right? We struggle with that. Do not crave the world's approval. That can be so massive for us. Loving the things in the world applies here as well. When Paul is confronting the Galatians about bad theology that's distorting the gospel, one of the things he says to them is in Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's saying, I'm... I'm willing to call you out on errant 
theology here because I am determined to please God, even if that costs me your approval. Even if you say, Paul, don't ever come back here again. We hate you. So here's the third principle from this passage. We must not be ashamed of our Savior and his truth. I'll take you back to verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We, we crave approval when we have been loved by God. The, the, the therefore there points us back to all that precedes that in chapter 4, and all of chapter 4 is therefore walk differently in light of how God has saved you. No longer walk like unbelievers in foolishness and the darkness of their sin. Walk differently. Why? As imitators of God, as beloved children. Imitate God because you have been loved by Christ. He gave himself for you. He has rescued you from darkness. He brought you up out of that pit. Don't return to it. Christ loves you. You have, by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ, the approval of the God of the universe because the righteousness of Christ is now yours. That's where your approval comes from because of where you stand in him. So whenever you are tempted to seek the love and approval of a fickle world with its ever-changing standards, whenever you are tempted to disregard God, God's call to holiness and walk back toward the darkness, remember the love of Christ. Remember what he has done. That's why all of the, all of the facts, all of the indicatives, all of the truths precede the commands. Know who you are in Christ. We have been saved. We have been awakened from death to life. That's the bookend of this. If you go down to verse 14, there's that statement that says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And we kind of look at that. It's, it's set off and like in quotes, like a little piece of poetry, or it's thought to be an old ancient hymn. It, it, it really is just Paul coming back to the death of Jesus saved you. He has already awakened you. You were dead in sin. You have been raised to life. Now walk in the light. Do not be ashamed of him. So when it comes to how you dress and what you watch and what attitudes you embrace, what you believe are the purposes of sex, where you draw lines on intimacy and desire, where you let your mind wander when you look at someone, will you take God at his word about things that he calls shameful? We should as beloved children who have been loved by Christ, who has given himself for us. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, writing to people who are struggling, feeling like outsiders, feeling like they're under persecution, and, and he describes them there and says, you need to prepare to live as sojourners and exiles in the land. You need to know that you will live as people who do not feel at home in this place and, and who may become outcasts as far as the culture is concerned. And he even says in 1 Peter 2, live as exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul. Peter knew that Satan and the world would actively wage war against God's people by weaponizing passions, by weaponizing our emotions, our understanding of the power of sex, our draw and toward, toward satisfaction and pleasure. God knows that Satan weaponizes these things. That's why Peter says you need to live as exiles when it comes to sexual sin. You need to live differently as if you don't belong in this world. That, that's hard. That's not 
necessarily where we want to be, but that's why he goes on in that passage and, and he quotes from Isaiah 28 and he talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone and he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Saying just trust him, rest in him, walk in him. You will not be put to shame when it matters, which is standing before the God of the universe, professing Jesus Christ as your savior. We must not be ashamed of our Savior or His truth. Listen, I, let me end on this. One of the great temptations I think we face going forward, particularly in reference to this topic, is to return evil for evil. If the world is going to be militant on matters of sex and sexuality, if the world is going to use the language of hatred, if the world is prepared to make all sorts of efforts to silence a biblical worldview, the temptation for us is going to be to fight back, to call names, to be nasty, to do what it takes, to, to punch right back. And by God's grace, we need to resist these urges. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The whole implication coming up to this part is, you were there, you were an object of God's wrath, but God being rich in mercy. So don't be ashamed of God's truth. Stand up for what is true and right, but walk in truth and grace. Be gracious to people because they are lost in darkness and they are lost in, as objects of God's wrath and they need Christ and they need to see the gospel through us. They need to see us respond as people who show the grace of Christ, who still demonstrate the mercy of Christ and who still love them as Christ loved them, even, even as we speak truth and warn them of consequences and of Satan's deadly designs in sin. Our Savior loved us and he gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as people who go first person right here. When we're looking through Ephesians, this is not remote truth. This is not um, theological knowledge that we simply store away as fact, but we were dead in our sins and transgressions. We we're objects of God's wrath. All here who now profess faith in Jesus Christ can, can put ourselves in those opening chapters of Ephesians as those who sinned willingly, boldly, unashamedly before the presence of a holy God. But you, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which you loved us, sent your son so that by grace we might be saved. We, we, uh, we can come back to Ephesians 5 when Paul says, none of these things should be named among you, but rather return with thanksgiving. That should not be in our midst, but thanksgiving should be on our lips constantly. We marvel at your grace, at your power to rescue. And so, Father, forgive us because we still, we still are surrounded by temptation. We are still in the flesh. We are still struggling. We are still a people who live in a fallen world. 
And there are times when, as Peter warned, these passions of the flesh will wage war. Father, thank you for the the sweet gift of repentance that we can run to you and acknowledge to you that we have sinned and we desperately need help. Fill us, please, we pray, with grace, with your spirit. Give to us a renewed vision to look at the world not with disdain, but to see the shameful things as shameful things. To see the sin for what it is, to not laugh at it, to not flirt around the edges with it, to not sort of figure out how close we can get to it, but to see it for what you describe it here as but then help us to see the people who are bound in it, who are unbelievers and who are trying to find their hope and their peace and their satisfaction through it and help us to live Christ in front of them. Help us to speak Christ to them. Help us to urge them to find that there is really only one source of living water that satisfies the thirst forever. There is only one who gives joy that is lasting above all things and that is Jesus. And so we come as your people to give you thanks, to pray for your spirit, to strengthen us. I pray, Lord, in particular for those younger generations as as they face new and evolving ways of our culture, finding ways to pressure them, to cajole them, to call them to, to different perspectives, to think differently, to dismiss the biblical picture. I pray, Lord, that you would Give to us, as your people, a, a firm commitment to truth, to believing that you have spoken sufficiently in your word, and that in you there is hope and life, and we will not be put to shame if we will trust in you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.